It's so good to be with you guys. Um, and we are going to be jumping in this summer over the next eight weeks or so uh, into a brand new series called No Greater Love, how God's love shapes and guides our relationships. Thanks for throwing that up there. Um, we're going to be spending this summer talking about what the love of God means for the different kinds of relationships and relational contexts in our life. And as I was getting ready for this, um, it just struck me how many changes and different kinds of relational dynamics happen in your 20s, in your late teens and into your 20s. Y'all, I am in my, my, the very end of my 20s, I'm staring 30 in the face, and so I'm looking back over the decade, and most of us, right, between 18 and 30, from the time you're 18, you're going to leave your parents' house, you're going to say goodbye, maybe, to friends that you've had through high school, maybe friends that you grew up with. You're going to move in, maybe with roommates. You're going to have to figure out those dynamics. You are going to maybe start dating somebody. You're going to have to figure out maybe how to break up with somebody if they're not the right fit. Maybe if they are the right fit, you're going to have to figure out how to get engaged and do engagement well and get married. And then if you keep on going, maybe you're going to have some kids. And by the end of your 20s, it's been an entire decade of relational upheaval and change, and it just makes me dizzy even just talking about it. Can anyone relate with me a little bit? Right, the dynamic of having to make new friends, figure things out, it's like your whole world gets flipped on its head a little bit. But the really, really good news, and what we're going to be pressing into over the course of this summer, uh, is that the Bible and scriptures and Jesus has so much to say, so much guidance um, for us as we're trying to navigate our different relationships. Um, even some of these biblical words that we throw around, they're really all relationship words, right? Words like righteousness, right? That's kind of a, a churchy word that we throw around a little bit. If you get to the heart of it, all righteousness means is being in right relationship with other people. It's a relationship word. Um, peace, right? We talked with this a handful of weeks ago. Peace being you're in a state of wholeness. Nothing's wrong in your world. You're right with God and you're right with other people, right? It's a relationship word faith. Faith is belief, but it's also trust in a person, in the person of Jesus, right? So even faith is a relationship word. And then obviously there's kind of the, the hot button one that we use and we throw around a lot and we're going to be talking about a lot over this summer, and that's the word love. Love. If you were here, I think it was three or four weeks ago when we were wrapping up our Holiness and Humanity series, we talked a little bit about um, what love looked like in the, the life of Jesus. Um, and that word in English is so interesting, right? Our English language isn't exactly equipped to talk about love very well, right? I can stand up here um, and kind of a, a funny little thought experiment. I can say, man, uh, I really love ice cream. And I really love my wife, and I really love my mom, and I really love my dog, and I really love Colorado, and I really love the USA, and I really love the Nuggets. And almost every single one of those words means different things, right? Love is incredibly vast <laughs> in English. And so in some ways, it's a helpful word, but in other ways, it's not that helpful. So what we're going to be doing over the course of the summer, um, we're going to be using a handful of different biblical love words. The Bible doesn't just use the word love. So for those of you who don't know, most of you should, but this will be an education to you. So the New Testament was written in Greek. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew. And these different languages have lots of different words uh, for love. Greek alone has four that we're going to be zooming in on and talking about. We'll be slipping one little Hebrew word in there as well. Um, but some of the Greek words that we're going to be using, 
we're going to be looking at what the word uh, eros in Greek means. That's the word for romantic love, right, for sexual love, what it looks like to be dating and in a relationship. We're going to say, what does the Bible have to say about uh, our dating and our relationships? Um, another Greek word that we're going to use is the word storge. This is like family love. This is the love between a mom and a dad, a sibling, a brother, or like people in your family, family loyalty. So we're going to say, what does it mean? What does the Bible and God have to say about our relationships with our family members, right? In your 20s, your relationships change a lot with those in your family. We're going to look at the word phileo. This is brotherly love. This is like friendship kind of love, right? What does it look like to be in a community of people coming on Tuesday nights and to be friends with people in a way where you're encouraging each other, strengthening each other, um, having friendships with both people who are the same sex and opposite sexes, right? Um, and having it not get muddled and weird. What does it look like to be friends with one another? Um, we're going to be looking next week at this biblical word in the Old Testament called hesed. It's talking about faithful, loyal love. But tonight, we're going to be looking in and zooming in um, on this term agape. Agape love. And when we're talking about agape, this is the kind of love that really is God's love. So we're going to jump in here in just a sec, but just wanted to give you a preview of where we're going. If you are uh, single in this room, you're going to want to come. If you're dating in this room, you're going to want to come. If you're engaged, if you're married, if you have parents, uh, if you want to have friends, right, just, just come. If you have relationships in your life, uh, just come because we have um, a lot to say about some of these different dynamics. But like I said, tonight we're going to be looking at agape, God's love. And we're starting with this at the very beginning for a really specific reason, right? We have this tagline, how God's love guides our relationships. Because we believe fundamentally that apart from the love of God, all other loves, they just kind of fall to pieces. They get weird and they get off and they get narcissistic and self-focused. And so we're going to basically ask, what's the secret sauce that keeps it all together, right? What exactly is the love that makes all other loves love? And I know I'm saying the word love all the time. It's probably meaningless at this point. But let's talk more about love. Um, if you want to open up in your Bibles to John chapter 15, verses 12 through 13. These are the verses we're going to be in tonight. We're going to read them. Together, we're going to pray, and then we're going to see what God has to say to us. This is John 15, verses 12 and 13. This is Jesus speaking. He says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. He's using the word agape. Greater love, greater agape has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. Let's pray. Jesus we need you. We need you. Lord, even the confession that your love guides our relationships. Um, Holy Spirit, I just confess that you guide tonight. You guide our time together. Your cross is what makes us a community. And so, Lord Jesus, would you lead us and guide us? I pray that you would change us and transform us. Um, fill us with your spirit. Teach us the love of God tonight. In the name of Jesus and all of God's people said, amen and amen. This passage here in John chapter 15 comes at a really interesting time. Um, it's one of Jesus' very last um, sections of really doing anything, of speaking, of teaching in the gospel of John. And it's one of those moments where you kind of have to like pause and take note of what's being said. 
Because when you come to the end of a relationship with someone, right, let's say it's somebody who's about to pass on, or let's say it's like your last goodbye with your best friend from college before like they go off for the, the summer, the last thing you say, it, it kind of gets like an extra little like oomph behind it, right? Like if you say like, oh, like you're the best, I love you, like that, those words, they stay with us. And then when you think back to that relationship, those words are the ones that come to mind. That's kind of what we have here with Jesus in these, these handful of chapters. They're like the last oomph, the last thing that he's talking about, the last thing he wants to leave his disciples with. And so we should take a little bit extra note because it's fascinating. He uses the word like, uh, he uses the word love like 15 times in this. He talks about those who love me, obey my commandments and abide in my love and greater love. He uses this word so much. And what's super interesting about the Bible um, is that it's not particularly interested, when we're talking about love, it's not particularly interested in giving us a clear and an easy definition. Um, it doesn't really care about like saying love equals this. It's not dictionary.com. Um, but what it does is it gives us lots of images and examples and points. When I was in high school, my parents used to live um, up like right on the foothills um, of the mountains here in Colorado. Um, and their house was amazing. We go hiking all the time. My favorite part about that house was that they had a hot tub. And they were like far enough out of the city that on most nights you could see the stars like crazy town. So all growing up, I'd sit in this hot tub with my friends, and we'd talk about life, and we'd talk about relationships and school, right? And then, but eventually, we'd end up just kind of like, like after marinating for a couple hours, right? You know, the hot tub, just looking up at the stars. And since I was young, my dad would teach me to look up at the stars and to pick out and notice these things called constellations. Now, you should all probably know what constellations are, right? But for those who don't, um, they're things that people have looked at in the past, and they're pictures in the sky that are formed out of stars marked together, right? They're these images that take shape in the sky that are punctuated by these bright stars. And you can say, oh, there's, here's, here's the shape of something. When we're talking about love in the New Testament, love in the Bible, um, and really agape kind of love, it's a little bit similar to this in the sense that we don't have, like, a clear definition but we have, bam, here's what love is like. Bam, here's what love is like. Here's what love is like. And so what we can do is we can look at these different constellation points and they come together to flesh out a picture for us of what the love of God looks like. So tonight we're going to use this passage, a couple other peripheral passages, um, and we're going to say, what are some constellation points? We're going to really zoom in on three different things um, that love is. That God shows us that love is, is and like, and we can get kind of a, a clearer definition for this. Um, the very first point, and this just screams at you in this passage, is that agape is sacrificial. Constellation point number one, agape is sacrificial. The passage says, greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. Greater. This word means the, the best, the ultimate, the, the truest, the purest kind of love that we see in Scripture is laying down kind of love. Love that sacrifices on behalf of and for the good of another person or another thing. When I was doing a little bit of research for this, um, I, I was, <laughs> was kind of just like, okay, I'm kind of curious what the, the conversation is around love. And so I went on Google, and I was like, I'm so curious what's going to come up. And I just typed in, what is love, right? 
asking Google about love is a, a bad idea. But like, so after like all the, like the YouTube videos of like that song, you know, baby don't hurt me, right? So after we kind of scrolled through those, I, I found a couple and they were like, they were fascinatingly awful, right? They were like, love is feelings and all these. And I'm like, okay, okay, a little bit. But okay, my, my favorite of them in its awfulness was love is self-actualization, I read that and I was like, oh my goodness, right? What a comparison to this kind of love. The scriptures present that love is self-sacrifice, completely focused on the good of another. And our world is shouting at us that love is what feels good to you, right? That the best thing that you can do is do what works for you. They're just complete polar opposites. Our world says that the greatest kind of love is self-love. And now there's a place to love yourself in the kingdom of God, but it, it's by far subordinate to loving others and laying down your life on behalf of others. I'm a, I'm a, um, a student, a little bit of history. I love stories. Um, and in the Second World War, so back in, this was like 1943, there was a group of American, British, and Australian soldiers. And they were fighting in the... Uh, it was like the Eastern Theater, so it was over in Japan, kind of Southeast Asia. And over the course of the war, they ended up getting captured, which is really, really bad news for any of you who are students of history. Uh, being captured by the Japanese is one of the, the harshest things that could happen to you. Um, and so they get put in this prison camp deep in the jungles of Southeast Asia, and the conditions get horrific. And what comes out of there is that not only was it horrific because they were prisoners of war and they were being forced to do manual labor and they weren't being fed enough. And um, those were all horrific circumstances. But it was horrific because of what it was doing in the hearts of the men who were captured. They began to descend to the level of their conditions. And some of the things that would happen is if one of them was dying, they would literally take whatever food or whatever he had and they would leave him there to die. And it became hopeless, the darkest of dark kind of context you can imagine. And one day, these men were forced to work. So they would go and they'd work all day. And there was a group of them that were brought out into the jungle and they worked and they dug and they did their thing. And intermittently throughout the day, the Japanese officers would check in and they'd count the, they'd count the tools, right, to say, okay, we, we don't want, or they didn't want them bringing the tools back and using them as weapons. So at one of these checkpoints, the Japanese officer comes and He's having them put their tools, and he counts, and he's counting the shovels, and he gets to the end, and there's one missing. And he absolutely loses it. He's, where's the shovel? Where's the shovel? And, and the guys are, we don't know where the shovel is. We know where the shovel is. And he starts pushing them, pushing them. He pulls out his gun and points it at one of them and says, if you don't give me the shovel, I'm going to shoot every one of you right now. Super dark. One of the men from the back steps to the front. He says, I, I did it. I took the shovel. Um, the Japanese officer and his compatriots go on and they beat this man so badly that he dies. They take his body back to camp. And they go on about their day. And they're working and they're digging. The next checkpoint, the time when it comes along, they go and they count the shovels. One. And they come to the end, but this time all the shovels are there. The Japanese officer had miscounted. And all the shovels had been there the whole time. And this man, recognizing what was going to happen recognizing the state that the others would be in, uh, sacrificed himself for them. And what happened in the camp was beautiful in some ways, because word gets around. And the men started hearing about what happened, that this man had sacrificed himself. And over time, 
it completely revolutionized not the circumstances, but the way that they were relating with one another. The story goes that they would, um, they would end up helping each other and laying down for one another. And ultimately, they even started this thing they called Jungle University. Basically, they would get together and they would have moments where they would put on plays and productions and they would encourage one another and they would read books together. And the entire dynamic of their living situation completely changed because of the sacrifice of this one man. What I want to point out, right, is this moment that this man did, it was, it was major sacrifice, right? It was agape kind of love. But what it did is that it produced lots of little other self-sacrificial actions. Agape, sacrificial love, it's the only force in the entire universe that can transform death and hopelessness and make it into life. But I want us to see in this is that we, uh, we sometimes, we look at sacrifice and we, we romanticize it a little bit, right? And we say, absolutely, like, I'd step in front of a train for you or I'd take a bullet for you or I'd, I'd lay down my life for you. But we sometimes forget that sacrifice and self-sacrifice, that it plays itself out in everyday common kinds of occurrences and expressions. I want us to read a passage together. Um, it's 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. It's kind of a classic passage on love. And what I want us to do, I'm going to read this out to you and pay attention to how many of these different um, descriptions of love are just like, they, they play out in common everyday things. They're not these large expressions. This is what it says, 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Each of these markers is lived out in everyday life everyday relationships. Love is patient when your roommate drinks your milk for the 15th time this month, right? Love is kind when someone cuts you off on the highway and everything in you wants to tailgate them and drive close. Maybe I'm just talking to myself on that one. Good grief. Um, it does not insist on its own way. Love is willing to put the toilet paper roll upside down instead of right side up, even though it's wrong to do it upside down instead of right side up, right? Love works itself out in lots of small instances. We envision ourselves making these grand acts of self-denial and forget that laying down one's life, it first looks like laying down things like preferences, desires, hopes, goals, longing, health, status, for the ultimate good of another person. This is the defining characteristic of God's love. It's willing to give for the good of another, even when it's costly for itself. Jesus lives this kind of life. And, and in, in this obvious way, right, the cross is the ultimate example of self-sacrifice. But if you look before in his life, he lived this out. Every moment he was laying down his life for the good of others, giving up his status, giving up his time, giving up his energy. Um, John 13, just a couple chapters before, uh, John 15, Jesus gets down on his hands and knees, and we all know this story, right? He washes the disciples' feet, even when they're grimy and gross. 
agape love sacrifices. It lays itself down. Let's go on to our our second point here. After agape sacrifices, agape is based in intimacy. It wants to be known. It's based on friendship. In this passage, John 15, lay down one's life, right? Greater love has no man than this, than to lay down one's life for one's, what's the word? Friends. It's based upon a relational status that's, um, that's willing to be known. It's based upon familiarity. Um, these days, I spend a lot of time at parks because I have a 16-month-old, and so she kind of toodles around and goes down the slide, and it's a lot of fun. Um, but one of the things that I learned about that I don't think was around when I was in elementary school, there's a bench, and I've seen a handful of these benches at different parks. And maybe you know what I'm talking about. There's this bench, and, like, and then like the little rubber like wording or whatever, it'll say, the buddy bench. <clears throat> and I was like, I don't really know what that is. But uh, Ellie was a, a three-year-old teacher for a long time, and so I was like, Ellie, what is a buddy bench? Can you teach me about this? And apparently what a buddy bench is, is it's a space where a kid can go and they can sit down on the buddy bench if they don't have a buddy. And if they want somebody to come and to play with them. So it's kind of curious. You have a kid who's there. And if you see someone on the buddy bench, it's it's kind of a moment where like it's an invitation to, to be friends with them, right? They're like, please be my friend. Like I would really like to play with you which is kind of sweet, and hopefully they get played with. Otherwise, that's kind of sad. But um, in this picture, right, I, I want us to, to see this analogy in kind of a funny way. Um, God is sitting on a buddy bench for us. He's sitting on the park in this buddy bunch, and he says, please be my friend. I would like to get to know you, and I would like you to get to know me. And some of you might be saying, Josh, God is invisible and big, and I don't like... I feel like I've tried to get to know God, but he seems like he's far away. How do I know that God is on the buddy bench? Two major things that we know, or two major ways that we know. First of all, and this might sound funny to you, but we look at the world around us and we see creation. Creation, in a way it's called general revelation. It's kind of a theological term. Basically what it means is that when we look at the world around us, there's hints And there's clues, and there's things about the way that the world works and the way the universe is that point us to a rational um, God or a rational mind or something behind the universe that wants to be known. We see this in Romans chapter 1. This is what Paul says. He says, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, talking about God, are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. What he's saying is that we look at the world around us and it points us to the invisible God. God reveals himself in creation. The scientist Albert Einstein said it like this. He said, the most incomprehensible thing about the universe is that it is comprehensible. It's kind of funny. What's he saying? He's saying the thing that doesn't make sense about the world, if you're from a perspective that there is no God, is that it makes sense. We look around the world and it has order and systems and beauty. How many of you guys are math people? in the room. Y'all, I took statistics when I was a junior in high school, and I was done. I was like, no thank you. But math, it's a set of abstract absolutes, right, that 2 plus 2 equals 4, and it will always equal 4. But somehow, these abstract absolutes actually work out in the world around us. Like math works and describes the universe. The universe is rational. The universe has rules. 
and laws. How many of you guys are on the other end of the spectrum? Maybe more like musicians. You have like, you're a deep feeler. You'd like to paint a little bit, throw something on the canvas and then weep over it. There we go. Um, okay, so the fact that there's beauty and that there's art and that there's music, just take a second and be like, how come this series of musical notes makes me want to weep and bawl because it's beautiful? There are these things that point us to a heart behind creation. So all of creation, it's a way that we know that God actually wants to be known. Proverbs 25.2 says it this way. It's the glory of God to conceal a matter, but it's the glory of kings to search it out. God hides himself so that we can come and find him and get to know him. And that's this idea of abstract general revelation. But he didn't just leave it there. Because if he did, right, we could get to a space where we said God is out there. There's something behind this whole uh, deal that's going on, but we might not get to Jesus. And the second way that God reveals himself to us is through scripture. This is going to be called special revelation. Again, a, a technical term. Scripture, scripture is a storyline trajectory of God revealing himself to people who are running away from him. From Genesis all the way on through the people of Israel, through the church, through Jesus, through the end. Uh, it's God revealing himself because he wants to be known. He wants to get to know us. The ultimate revelation of this is Jesus, is the incarnation. Think about it this way. God wanted to be known so badly by you and by me that he took on skin and bones that the invisible God whom no eye has seen and no ear has heard and no man can ever see took on skin so that we could see him. Like, friends, if that's not someone on a buddy bench, I don't know what is. Like, he has done everything he can to be known by you, to be friends with you. God desperately wants to know you. And now, let me uh, add another caveat to this. Because sometimes, right, um, the idea of being known by someone is a little scary because intimacy with, with someone, and when I say intimacy, I'm meaning, um, I'm meaning a familiarity. I'm meaning you actually know what's going on in that person's life. It, in some ways, it gives, it gives them some power, right? Like, Ellie is my wife. She knows things about me. She knows me. And she could hurt me way more than a stranger could, but she can also love me way more than a stranger could. You see, that there's a kind of this dynamic. And so... There's something to be said about the knowing that God wants to invite us into. It's tender, and it's kind, and it's compassionate. It's full of kindness. When God says he wants to know you, he's, he's kind. He's not, he's not harsh with you. I want to read a quote by, by Tim Keller that I love in this way. He says, to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear, right? To be found out. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of our self-righteousness, and fortifies us for any difficulty that life can throw at us. You were made to live in a state of knowing with God. When I was in Tulsa, Oklahoma, so my, my wife and I, we lived there for about five years before moving here. We were in Oklahoma, um, and while I was there, I got connected with this group of guys. And when we met at first, we were strangers to one another. 
Uh, I didn't know them. They didn't know me. It was kind of awkward. We met because we were like, okay, we think we should get together and pray for each other um, and have some time to encourage each other and share life's struggles and share life's joys and just help each other be better guys and better followers of Jesus. And so we started this meeting, um, and it was a little awkward and tricky and a little weird at first. Um, but what ended up happening over time as we got to know each other, as those walls and those barriers came down, right, and like step by step, like we got to know like, like oh, like this is Josh and he struggles with this and oh, this is this guy and he struggles with this. But then also like, oh, but you're really gifted in this and you love this. As we got to know each other, we reached a point in our friendship where I could call one of those guys on the phone, tell them anything that I had done. Like, I could tell them I robbed a bank and was currently holding the gun, right? And they, would, and they wouldn't even be like, they wouldn't be shocked. They'd be like, oh, okay, like, we'll pray for you. That's an exaggeration, obviously. I hope they would call the police. But, um, but the, the point being is that I could tell them anything, and they wouldn't be, they wouldn't be shocked. There wasn't a sense of like, <gasps> like, you're a really bad Christian, right? Like, not at all. Uh, but at the same time, I couldn't impress them. Like, I couldn't show up and be like, well, John chapter 15 says this and this and this. And that connects to this passage in the Old Testament. Here, how this is applying in my life. And they just kind of look at me and they're like, so what's actually going on? Like, because you're talking to me about a lot of different things, but not actually what's going on in your life. I couldn't impress them. Not because they didn't think I was great, but because they weren't, um, they weren't to be deceived by, like, the flashy language and, like, the smooth talking that we can sometimes do. And let me tell you, friends, those relationships changed my life. I am not the same person I was before those friendships. Because something happens in the human heart when you sit across from another human being who has just heard the, the thing that feels scariest in you to share. And they look at you and they say, friend, Jesus loves you and he forgives you. I love you and I forgive you. Let's do this together. When our knowing and intimacy is loving and safe and kind, it completely changes the game. It's revolutionary. And this is what God's love is like. God's love is based on friendship. He wants to know you. He's sitting on a buddy bench waiting for you to come and to sit down with him. And he wants to tell you what's on his mind. And he wants to let you say what's on your mind. The funny, quirky little things that you think of. He wants to know those things. It's based in intimacy. It's based in friendship. And this brings us to our last kind of constellation point. This third point here is that agape, God's love, it delights. Agape delights. It takes great pleasure in the beloved. Now, this is... Not something that John 15 ap- like just goes out and says. But it's something that we can discern through other kinds of scriptures. It's a motivation behind the laying down, right? If greater love is no one than this, than to lay down one's life for one's friends, why? Why would someone lay down? I believe it's through delight, because of delight. We see um, in Matthew chapter 4, it's probably one of the best examples, I think. Jesus just got baptized. He comes up out of the water. And his father looks and says, this is my son, whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. I have delight in him. I see him and I I enjoy him. Hebrews chapter 12 says this. He says, um, it's kind of the end of this uh, encouragement to the church. And he encourages them. He says, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, 
the joy that was set before him <clears throat> endured the cross, scorning its shame. Love can be motivated by a lot of different things, um, not even bad things, right? Like love can be motivated from uh, a sense of duty. Love can be motivated by obligation. Love can be motivated by loyalty. But I think God's love is mostly motivated by delight. I want to say two things about delight. We're going to tie this all together, have a chance to respond here in a sec. But two, two different points about delight that I think are really important for us. The first is that delight is first based in identity, not in behavior. Let me tell you what that means. Delight is first based in identity, not behavior. There are some forms of earthly love that wait until you do the right things in order to express affection for you and love for you. But God's love delights in you beforehand. God's love delights in you because of who you are, not necessarily what you do. Romans 5.8 says this, says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So let me, let me communicate this just so clearly. Because you are crafted in the image of God, because you bear his fingerprints and his identity and his name, because he made you, he delights in you. We've said, I'm, you, you may have heard this before, but even in the moment when Jesus was baptized, he had done no ministry. He just lived a, a human life. And the Father says, I am well pleased with you. It's based in identity, not necessarily in behavior. Now, that's not to say that God loves all the things that we do, because there are things that we do that are destructive to us. But he delights in you regardless of what you do. The second point is this, and it flows from the first. Delight results in change. It's the soil in which our souls can grow. Um, I heard a little analogy, and I don't know if it's true, but it fits my point, so I'm going to share it with you. A little story. So there was this, um, this study, supposedly, that these little kids were doing. And what they did is they took plants, because they liked plants. And so they had one plant over here, and they gave them all the same, like they, they watered it, and they put it in its soil. And they said nothing but really great things to the plant. And they were like, you are the best plant in the world. You've got great leaves. You're looking good today, plant, right? And they just, they were just like friends with that plant. Stuck it on the buddy bench, got surrounded by lots of people, right? They just loved on that plant. And then there was another plant. And this sad plant, um, it, was, it was just said all the mean things. They said, you're just not as good as that other plant, right? And they just like tore on that plant and hated on that plant. And, and supposedly, I don't, again, I don't know if this is true, but supposedly what had happened is that the one plant that had all the nice things spoken to it, it flourished. And it bloomed and it grew. And then the other plant that had mean things spoken to it, it shriveled and it uh, went down. It didn't, it didn't thrive. What's the point I'm trying to make here? Is that when we live in an environment where we receive the delight of God, that when we realize that we're delighted in, by God regardless of what we do and don't do, that it actually produces the change in us that we want to see that it actually enables us to grow and to thrive and to be alive in God, right? We know that when God came to save us, he didn't just leave us where we were. That while we, we were sinners, we were dead in our transgressions, but God has made us alive in Christ Jesus, right? So God came to meet us where we are, but he also came to transform us and to sanctify us and to bring us into life. 
I believe that delight, knowing that we're delighted in, is so important in this process of growth and sanctification. That when you know that God delights in you, that it actually results in you being able to grow. Delight is the terrarium for your soul to grow in. God delights in you. He loves you. Even as the band is coming up, I want to make one last comment about love. And that's that agape, God's love, it reproduces itself. It's reciprocal. What, um, in, in all this John 15 passage, it says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Right? So love flows from Jesus to the Father. My command is this, Jesus speaking, Love each other as I have loved you. Those who love me obey my commandments. Loving delight creates a circle, a cyclical pattern of receiving and giving. Now, I said at the beginning of this message, right, that this very first point, that the agape love of God is what's going to tie together all the other things, all the other points. All other kinds of love are really only love um, when they're full and inhabited with the agape of God. In this thing, we can't give love that we haven't received. So even these three points, right, that agape is sacrificial. Agape is intimate. It's based on friendship. Agape delights. Until we've come to a space where we have received the love of God for ourselves. That we know that he loves us. He cherishes us. He chooses us. We actually can't come to a space where any other relationships in our life are healthy and work. We have to receive first. It's what we have to do. God is here to give his love to you. He wants you to receive, to enjoy, to express. That image, right? So the constellation points. Christian faith is unique in that we don't have a specific love equals this. But we believe that at the center of these constellation points is actually a person. Jesus is the image that is crafted by the constellation. Jesus himself. In Christian faith, love is not a feeling. It's not an idea. It's not even a set of actions. It's fundamentally a person. What does that mean for us tonight? Jesus himself is here to be one with us, to come and to teach us and to lead us in the way of love. And if our life and our relationships, if our dating relationships, if our friendships, if our family relationships don't have Jesus himself, right, not some abstract idea of love, but Jesus himself right at the center of them, then those relationships are going to be off. They're not going to work. Love is not actually going to happen. And here's what I think and here's what I hope. So we're here as a, a New Life Young Adults community. Right, you're here because, um, I'm, I'm hoping it's because that you want to be a part of something that God is doing here in this community, right? Here, Tuesday night, June 13th. We're here because God is here and we want to be a part of what he's doing. Guys, I so deeply believe that what God is doing here in this community is that he wants us to receive the love of God so that we can learn to give the love of God and become a community that's fueled and filled with the power, the love, the life, the joy, right? Life is good when you've received the love of God. This is something that he is inviting us into. Go ahead and stand with me here at the end. So I really just have kind of one 
Uh, I guess one question, it's an invitation, but it's as we're coming into this summer where we're going to talk about relationships, um, relationships are all based upon the other, the person you're sitting next to, the person across from you, the person you're going to hang out with after this, right? They're all based, they're all based the way we relate with one another. And my question is, uh, is are you guys in to be a community that's based on the love of God? It's just an invitation. It's, it's do you want to do this with Jesus? And if the answer is yes, then the very first place to start is to ask God to give you a greater revelation of his love. That's, that's place number one. Now, if I was talking, right, and one of these points kind of stood out to you, if you were like, man, I don't really think I've embraced the sacrificial love of God. I don't know that God delights in me. Man, I don't know if I've... I've been intimate with God, if, we've, if we're friends, um, then maybe that's where God wants to meet you. Maybe that's where he wants to give you kind of an, an extra little dose uh, of his love and encouragement. Why don't we pray together? Let's ask God to show his love to us, to reveal his love to us. Uh, we'll go into a time of worship, and then we'll come all together at the end. But let's pray together. Yeah, King Jesus, God who took on skin and bones for the love of us, Thank you for your love. I just pray the simplest passage that I can think of, John 3, 16. Thank you that for you so loved us. For you so loved us that you gave your only son, that you came, you came, you came into our neighborhood. That when we put our trust in you, when we believe in you, we don't have to perish in God, but we receive eternal life. So Holy Spirit, Spirit of God, I pray that you would come and speak to each heart. We can only respond in gratitude and reception. Come and do your work in us, King Jesus. We love you because you first loved us. In your name, Jesus. Amen and amen. Let's worship together, friends, and we'll go from there.